Welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Dan. I'm actually meeting today with my co-author and friend of many, many years, Lee Perlitz. Lee, how are you? I am very well, Dan. I thought we'd take a bit of a, an interesting approach to today's discussion and talk about the vet sector from an author's perspective. Lee, how many publications have you written over the years? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I know that I've actually published around 14 books, but in terms of units written, it's, it's got to be in the hundreds. It's definitely got to be in the hundreds. Yeah, it's, it's, I knew it would be something like that, yeah, because we, we've talked about it in the past. But tell me what you think the role of a textbook is in today's vet sector. I, I think it's important because a lot of the, the, the students these days are learning at their own paces. They don't necessarily go to classes. They don't necessarily go to online you know, courses or that, that sort of thing. So a textbook is still important for you to have, whether it's in electronic format or still in paper-based format, so that you can read digest, reread, redigest. It's it's one thing to attend a class and have someone tell something to you, but you really only gain a full understanding if you can read something, in my opinion, as an author, and have time to properly digest it. I think it's interesting because you gave that perspective as the author in quotation marks, and I totally agree with you, a lot of what you said. But I do find that the pushback on paper books now, I, I actually interviewed Norma from uh, McGraw-Hill a few weeks back, and uh, she said that depending on the industry, depending on the context of who you're teaching, depends on whether a textbook is what people want or not. I pushed back as an author like you did and thought, no, actually, it, it, when else do you get the chance to sit quietly? Yes, and, and go through the, the, the content at a, at a pace that you can actually absorb. Yeah, and I think it's also a generational thing. Obviously, the younger generations were like the electronic formats and so forth, whereas my generation and perhaps the, the one after mine still prefer to hold a book, to turn the pages. I, for example, when I'm learning something, like to write stuff in the margins and underline things and highlight things so that when I'm looking back later, I go, yeah, that was a really very, very good point. Do I still feel that way about it? You know, and you can only do that if you've actually written stuff down or made notes or, or you know, you, you should see some of my textbooks. They've got more ink in them from burrows than they have from printer's ink. I love that idea and I think when I went through university god 20 years ago um, I, do, I do recall I loved getting the textbooks and making them my own you know as opposed to just keeping them all perfect so you could resell them at the end of the semester yeah, I'd never be able to resell any of mine not one if you look at that bookshelf back there that's got probably about a hundred books on it they're all educational textbooks that I've used over the years you know and they've all got stuff written all over them as a teacher, I love the fact that we can use a book in a classroom situation, get the people to read a little chunk together and then discuss the implications of applying that chunk. And, you know, I think the textbook itself has real value within the classroom. Yes, I agree with that completely. I think doing it what the way you've described it is probably the best way of actually going about those things because you can read a section of a textbook and then within your group, have a really good deep down discussion about it because you can then drill down into the subject and gain a really full understanding of it, which you can't do if you're just sort of you know reading it by yourself. 
Yeah, I used to really enjoy going to um, going to university and, and sitting at a quiet table in the corner of the library and going to all the different bookshelves and getting three or four textbooks out and just or journals, whatever they were at the time, and trying to find stuff and, and reading about it and writing and scratching all things down. I really got a lot of joy out of doing that. Today, I think uh, we still have access to that um, with textbooks. However, we now also have the internet, yeah. which is that immediacy of finding out information. What's your opinion of that? I think the internet is a useful tool, but I think that you need to use it with a fair amount of caution as well because anyone can post anything on the internet and it doesn't necessarily need to be a fact. Okay, so you can get a lot of misinformation on the internet. And the way around that, I suppose, you know, talking about it from the perspective of an author where we have to sort of research the the materials that we put into a book, you need to cross-reference everything that you look at. If you're researching on the internet, you don't just look at one site. You look at several sites, you look at authorised sites and make sure that the information that you've got, that you pull together into your book is factually correct. I used to think of ourselves as curators of information. That's what an author is because the information is out there. Unless we've done our PhD in the subject that we're writing about and therefore it's directly from our own research, most authors are just curators of information. Yes, because people actually do read the books that we put out that are published by us and they assume that the information that they're getting off us is correct and that it has been provided by a subject matter expert. And I think that's where the difference is between being an author of a published book and an author of a blog online. And can I also add to that, and I don't mean any disrespect to people who've done this because it's a great way forward if you want to promote yourself, is the self-publishing route now. It's quite easy, a little expensive, but quite easy to print your own book and it looks great even get the ISBN number and everything it's like it's a legitimate book I I think that's where people then need to be sure that the textbooks that they are buying are from established publishers like Pearson like McGraw-Hill and so forth because you know when when you're publishing for an established publisher like that one writing for them Um, As we both know, it's a very, very long process. You know, you have maybe six months to eight months to actually write the manuscript, to research the material that you're putting into it. It then gets proofread. It then gets checked and double-checked and triple-checked to make sure that everything is correct. So from the time you you get your, your, you know, go-ahead to write a book to the time it actually comes out to the publish could be be two years. Mm. So you know the information that's in it has been properly vetted and is correct in every way, shape or form. So one of my passions is um, education research and neuroscience, etc. And things are changing in that so rapidly. And, and that sort of lead time to a textbook, it can be difficult to get the latest information in it. However, we can most definitely rule out some of the pseudoscience that is out there. I've been training and assessing now for 13, 14 years and in that time, we've seen a lot of changes in what people used to think were dogma in the industry, things like learning styles and left and right brain theory and these, these sorts of things. But we know now that those things are, are myths because of the research. How do we as authors or how can we as authors make sure that that sort of stuff doesn't creep into our, uh, our work? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. I, th- I think we'd spoken about this once before. I think training is an instinctual thing. Um, it's one thing to read all the bits and pieces about, you know, kinesthetic and, and auditory and visual and, you know, all these various different things that go on. But I think as a trainer, you need to know who your particular student is. 
in each and every group because they're always going to be different. And the same thing applies to when you're an author. You look at the subject that you're actually writing on. You look at what you need to actually put there, put in there. And that's where sort of the training packages are, are relatively handy, even though they are a little restrictive. They give you an idea of the sort of thing that you're going to be writing about. They give you an idea of the level of education that the person that you're writing to will have. And you use your own instinctive training expertise, I guess, to actually write that way. I always try and write as if I was standing in front of a group of people and, and training them. I never write with, you know, thus, all this, you know, all these sorts of weird and wonderful words. I always picture myself standing in front of a group of students and delivering a subject to them. And that's how I write. And that also plays into the way the book's laid out as well with um, a lot of white space, a lot of uh, you know, tables, diagrams, things like that, because we are visual creatures. We, we love to, to get the information out through writing. That's, that's the creative process of communication through the written word. However, having the white space, having things in tables, having things in colour, um, these are also very important things as an author to keep in mind when you're creating the Yes. The book. And I think one of the other important things that we do when we're writing a book like that is to break up all of that stuff, all of the information that you're putting in it. Because you can get you can get your brain fried if you read too much stuff. You break it up with activities. All right, so here's a here's a, a subject, blah, 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 blah. Now try it out by doing this. And you break it up with little instances where they have the opportunities to actually try this stuff out for themselves. You know, it may not be an accessible activity. But it's something for them to do to actually try out that particular point to see whether it works in their particular situation or not. And you've got to remember to do that kind of stuff when you're writing too. I'd love to recommend a book to anybody who's listening. It's an American publication, but it applies 100% to what we're talking about here. And it's called Powerful Teaching. And it talks about things like space repetition, chunking, desirable difficulties, all these, these researched ways in which students learn better yep. thoroughly recommend it so even what you were just talking about with the way you, you have an activity at the end of a certain chunk that's recognized brain science right there we, we know that we can only pay attention for an x amount of time varying on the subject and depending how much we're into it but we we know roughly that and um just going back to a question i asked before about you know how do we keep up to date with these sorts of things we can always put links in our, in our books. You know, we can always put links and say, okay, for further information, link here. And I know we did that in our textbook with um, the updates and validation systems, or validation processes and, and requirements through the Australian Skills Quality Authority. Yes. Rather than try to update our, our textbook, we just said, go find this link because yes. that's, the, that's the government. That's where you're going to find it. Yes. Why would we just reproduce it here when it could be out of date by the time we, we get printed? Yeah, absolutely. I think links are a very, very important part of the, the writing process. And I mean, there are other considerations as well from a publication point of view is that you're only allowed. And I mean, we, I, I often get comments on why didn't you include this and why is this bit so short and, you know, why haven't you addressed this particular uh, subject in this book and I, I get that all the time and the reason for that is and not putting too much of a, a negative on the on the publishers themselves but you're only given a certain word count and you have to write to that word count so you there are things that you have to leave out as much as you would like to expand on a subject and go well you know here is the glory of this particular subject you've got to shorten it to a thousand words or less you know, so there are those considerations. And by putting in those links, not only do you make sure that the, the person reading the book has updated information whenever they want it, there's 
further information for them if they happen to like that particular subject or they want to know more about it and we haven't covered it well enough in the book then go to this website and find out more it increases longevity of the text as well Uh, i was really interested in how long our text has been out since 2010 it's only in the second edition now which is 2016 which is the current version of that particular qualification and yet it's still current and it's current because we have links in there. And it's also current because we've, you know, we've, we've got links in there or, or yeah, links, I should say, to Facebook pages where people can find out the latest if they need to as well. Yeah. And we've created, uh, or you particularly for the diploma level book, created another unit yes. to meet the needs of the new version of the diploma. And that's um, a free edition for yes. anybody who buys that textbook. So as authors, you can only do what you can do and the publisher can only do what they can do. Yeah. But I love what you said there, that the, the depth of information is endless as long as you've got references within the text that the student can follow easily. Yes. I remember, sorry, I'm going to go down this little rabbit hole, but I remember, you know, reading the textbooks at university and from one year to the next or one semester to the next, you had to go get the next edition. Yeah. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, and they, I, I don't know why they did it. Well, maybe next year it was, but um, it, it stopped the students uh, selling off their secondhand books. So well, maybe they got <laughs> two or three semesters out of it. I don't know, but not, not long. But, the thing I was actually going to go down to saying is the reference lists at the back of these books or at the back of the chapters were so long and you could never find them all. Yeah, and they were all other textbooks which would cost you another $100 or whatever (laughs) to buy. Yeah, or or you'd have to subscribe to some journal. Um, Now, fine while you're at university, but when you leave university, it's it's, it's harder to find those journals. And, um, yeah, and I found that really awkward. Like if I wanted to find out more about something, I couldn't you know I have to ask the lecturer or or whatever but the links make it a lot easier well the thing you've got to be be careful of though is to make sure that you use proper authorized sites and that the links are likely to still be there in six months or 12 months time which is where it's useful because a lot of the government sites that we base a lot of this information on like you know SSOs and stuff like that they are all constant and you can you can be pretty sure that those links are going to work in 12 months two years or whatever so you got you have to make sure that you use the right kind of links too you know that do have proper information in them and aren't just some guy's blog. Yeah I actually had a bit of a, a talk with a publisher about our last reprint and the links in there were the full URLs, the full URLs. And I thought, they're long. Yeah. No one's going to type them no. in. And you can through Google or through, I'm trying to think of the other ones now, but there's a few sites where you can just grab a long link, throw it in there, and it spits out a shortened link. And, and it's easy to find, just write shortening links. And it becomes a link that's only maybe 10 characters long. Yeah. And I said, put them in there. And yeah. they wouldn't. Yeah, no, it's, it, they're traditionalists. They really are traditionalists. They've got their set way of doing things. It's one of the reasons why, and I will name the name here, it's one of the reasons I had such a problem with Cengage when I was writing for them because they are so set in their ways that you you just can't get them out of this mould and it's it's completely old-fashioned way of thinking. And on that interesting note, <laughs> where do you see textbooks going in the next 20 years? Do you think they're still going to be around? Are they going to be around but different? Do you think they're just not going to be around at all? I would hope that they'll still be around, but realistically, I don't think they will. I think we're going to get to the electronic book uh, stage in the not too distant future. I mean, I, I think it's a huge shame. Look at my library wall. Is that not the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen with hundreds of books on it? I I love books, but I think that the newer generations don't. It'll be all Kindle or iPad or, you know, on your computer or on your phone or talking books. 
you won't read anymore, you'll have them read to you. Yeah, a, a lot of us uh, extrapolate the future from the recent past and that's exactly where I think it would go if, if we did that. I hold out a little bit of hope though and that little bit of hope is that there is quite a, a large groundswell of support for getting back to basics, getting back, you know, putting that phone down because depending on the culture, of course, and the cultures are varying, but I do see a lot within the American culture, somewhat here in Australia, somewhat in the UK, definitely not so much in the Asian cultures yet, of really trying to put the phone down. And if we can put the phone down, we can start learning about communication again. And if we start learning about communication again, then the written word's going to make a resurgence because if it doesn't, we're going to be talking in emojis again. Yeah, I, I hope you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I notice it all the time when you go out and have a coffee with people or you just go out anywhere, you sit down on a train or whatever. The first thing that people do is they'll haul out their phone or their iPad. They'll go and have a coffee together at a coffee shop, but they won't talk to each other. They're both on the phone texting. It's become that kind of society, and I think that's a real shame because it, 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 you know, it, it shortens your enjoyment of life. And it also shortens your attention span. And this, this I think, is where we're going with the textbooks of the future is if they're not in bite-sized clickbait chunks, we're not going to hold the attention and interest of the reader. Now, this is where I'm holding out the hope that, and we don't, we can't read the futures, but this is where I'm holding out hope that if we do have a bit of a resurgence of proper communication again, then the idea of elongating our attention spans again might come back into reality and we can start reading again. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And that's one of the reasons why I I do hope that people don't give up on face-to-face training courses. They are so much more valuable than reading something online because online you can't sit down and actually drill down into a subject and really discuss it and get other people's opinions and find out what other people are doing uh, about these things. I I do hope that's true. Um, My two cents on that is that I've, I've run a few virtual courses even live, you know, streaming through very high-powered connections through some organisations. And even with the best technology available today being the end of 2019, it's stunted, mm. uh, the audio's bad, mm. um, discussions have to be done within the individual areas, even though the software is there that allows them to discuss between groups in Perth and Adelaide, mm. you actually try to make that happen. Mm. And it's stunted, difficult, there's no feeling of collaboration. Mm. So the whole course whilst it's face-to-face in inverted commas over a, a connection, is um, it takes a lot longer to do and the learning outcomes are nowhere near, nowhere no. near what you get in, a, in an active classroom. And uh, so I, I can't see it getting that much better anytime soon uh, where that does become a reality. Everyone says, oh, yeah, but how about virtual reality? How about mm-hmm. um, you know, AI? Well, great, yeah, great. But we're a long way off making that anywhere near... Um, what it needs to be to replace a face-to-face class. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it, it comes down to also that in all of those situations, like online or, or that type of thing, you don't really get the interpersonal, non-verbal communication that you do when you're sitting in a classroom with someone, when you're actually watching their reaction, or you can feel their reaction, not just watch it, but you can feel their reaction. It's a silly thing to say, but it makes a huge difference to the way a group actually you know, interacts. Yeah, my my classes. Um, I could run a class last week, and I uh, I walk around all the time. I yeah. jump up and down. I get people off their chairs. I walk around, squat next to them while they're doing an activity. Yeah. you do that online. You can't. Yeah. No, <laughs> you, you just can't, can't do it. Can't. And so you don't have that teacher to student relationship either. It's yeah. just not there. The barrier is is quite cold. 
And uh, anyway, so <laughs> another always, tangent. Yeah, I always used to set up my classrooms in a U shape because I always loved to walk around and, and be in front of the people that I was actually interacting with, you know. And, and that's uh, so the U is a uh, the go-to, and the other one I always do now if I can is have them in small groups, so groups yeah. of four, or four yeah. or six, yeah, depending how big the class is. But uh, anyway, there yeah, we sort of got off textbooks for a second there, but uh, <laughs> just the idea of learning full stop yeah. is very exciting. So yeah. Lee, uh, thank you so much for your time. I'll edit out all the swear words that you you had. <laughs> Don't you dare! <laughs> Um, and all the, the mouthing off at various organisations. Terrible, terrible stuff. I don't know how I'm going to edit all this out. It's going to be very difficult. But that said, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you again. And um, audience, uh, if you want to get hold of Lee, you can't. She's retired, so don't. Uh, <laughs> I do still have a website. And that is training. Yeah? lptraining.com.au. Excellent. So, no, Lee still does a, a bit here and there on the side, and it's always exquisite work. So, you know, if you ever do engage with her, it's going to be good. But otherwise, I love my couch. Yeah, Lee, <laughs> Lee likes her couch. All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, that's it for the uh, Vocational Education Podcast for this week. Um, we're going to have a bit of a break over Christmas, and we'll be back in the new year. But, um, yeah, if you've got any other subjects or you'd like to be on the podcast, uh, just drop me a line, uh, dan at spectraining.edu.au, and uh, we'll have a chat. Lee, I'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And the same to you and all of your listeners. Thank you.